If you've been with us, uh, you know the last, I think it's nine weeks now we've spent in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, we kind of said, was a bridge between the first and second year of Jesus' ministry. And so what we've been doing is walking through Jesus' life chronologically, looking at it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels that share, show us the life of Jesus and what he did and what he said and where he went. And so as we've been working through that, we said the Sermon on the Mount was kind of that bridge. Well, now Jesus gets up from that teaching. We've finished kind of looking through all that passage in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he goes out and he comes into Capernaum. And so what we see now is he's right in kind of the throes of the second year of his ministry. And the heading we've been saying over the second year, when we look at it, is kind of the year of popularity. Crowds are everywhere. People are flocking to Jesus. He can't go anywhere where he's not mobbed. Everyone is hearing about what he's doing and what he's saying and the miracles he's done. And people are just flooding to him. And so we're going to see that now for, for a while here that Jesus is, is just bombarded with people everywhere he goes. And he's going to continue to teach and he's going to continue to love and to heal and to call people to himself, to correct, to show our need and continue to point us to how he meets that need. And so we're going to walk through uh, really this kind of year two, a whole lot of uh, different episodes with people, with Jesus coming, them coming to Jesus and him teaching them and correcting them and showing them these different things. And so this very first one today, we're going to look at this interaction that he has with this man, the centurion, and he comes to him and Jesus' kind of summary statement of what happens here is he says, I tell you, not in, even in Israel have I found such faith. And the way I want us to look at this passage is really it teaches us a lot about faith about what it means and what it is and why it's so important. And so I want us to look at this uh, story together of Jesus and his interaction with this man, the centurion. And I want us to think about faith, about why it's so important, uh, why it's universal. And so I want us just to think about it together. And the way that we're going to look at this passage is like this. First, I want us to consider the nature of faith. Then secondly, the object of our faith And then lastly, when we put our faith in Jesus, how we can rest in that faith, right? So the nature of our faith, the object of our faith, and how we rest in it when we put it in Jesus. And so let's just start with the nature of faith, the big idea here. And so if you look at the beginning of this passage again, chapter 7, verses 1, 2, and 3, it says, after he finished all these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. That's actually talking about the Sermon on the Mount. He's just finished. He gets up. There's been this great crowd of people that he's been teaching, and he goes into Capernaum. And then it says, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And so there's a little bit of background that we need to know just as we think about this story and what's happening. A centurion was just a Roman soldier, uh, an officer kind of in the Roman military. Uh, They were fairly high up, had a very important part uh, of kind of the Roman system and the way they did things. Sometimes people say centurions were the the backbone uh, of the the Roman army and what they were doing. But he was a man of of kind of means, uh, someone who who was high up in that. But remember what we've been talking about all the way through the series. The whole time we've been talking about Jesus' life. Jesus lives in this time and in this area in an occupied, he's an occupied people. The Jewish people, the Israelites, had been taken over by the Roman Empire and they were ruling over them, right? They are an occupied people with a ruling army over them. And so what we've seen all the way through is this idea that people are longing for the Messiah to come partly to to rid them from this 
occupying force to free them from it. And that's part of their understanding even of the Messiah, that he would come and overthrow the government and and loose them in that way. And so that's kind of the background that we've been seeing all the way through the Gospels. And so here we have this, this Roman military man that many would regard as the enemy, right? Like this is the guy that's actually ruling over you and he's part of that. But what we have here is kind of unique in this regard because he's actually well regarded by the people. You see that in verses 3 and 4, because it says when the centurions heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And then verse 4 says, and when they came to Jesus, right, the Jews that are going on his behalf, they come to Jesus and they say to him, they say to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying he's worthy for you to do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Right. And so it's kind of unique that this guy is a Roman military man has actually helped quite a bit with the Jewish people in this area. And they regard him very highly. They say he's worthy of you, Jesus, to come and to help him. And so it's a little unique in the background that we've been looking at and kind of the animosity that's there between so many uh, with the Romans and the Jewish people. But here, this guy seems to be pretty highly regarded. And so that's just background of who he is. But the reason he he calls for Jesus, I want us to think about that for just a second. It tells us in verse 2 that he had a servant who was sick at the point of death and he was highly valued by him. And so this servant that he has, this bond servant that's under his care, that works for him, he he greatly values this guy. He cares for this person. And I'm, I'm reading between the lines here, but I think it's more just in his value as a servant, but as a friend that he greatly cares and that this person is at the point of death. And so he gets to a place where he's facing an issue that he can't resolve. And so he decides to reach out for Jesus. And I want us just to stop and think about that for a second. As we think about the nature of faith, oftentimes that's the way it works. We come to issues of faith in our life when we become acutely aware that there's things that are outside of our control. Now, let me back up for just a second, because the truth is, There's always things, pretty much everything is outside of our control, but we're pretty good at pretending like it's not. We're pretty good at insulating ourselves in ways to pretend like we're in control and we've got a handle on things. But what happens at different times is things break out and they make it very, very clear that we're not in control. That happens when a loved one gets really sick, sick to the point of death, like the centurion's friend here, this guy that works for him. You get to a place where you're like, I don't have any control over this situation. I'm facing death in the face and there's nothing that I can do about it. And so oftentimes that's what happens with issues of faith. When we become acutely aware things are outside of our control, we then start to reach out. We start to go, okay, I've got, I've got to get some order on this. What do I believe about this? What am I going to do here? And so that's what happens with this centurion. He takes a step of faith to reach out to Jesus, to help him with his dear friend that's on death's door. But I want us to stop for just a second and think about what do we mean when we say that, if he takes a step of faith? What does faith even mean? If we're talking about the nature of faith and Jesus is marveling at his faith and this this is teaching us a lot about faith, well, what does that actually mean? And I guess it depends partly on who you ask. I was reading this week different dictionary definitions of faith. Right? Like I was, I was going through and comparing different ones and kind of thinking about it, thinking what the Bible says about it, what God's word says about it, but just what our culture says. How do we define what faith is? And so I'm going to read you two definitions 
And I want you to see if you can hear the difference. Both from like well-established dictionaries as I was looking online and different things. These are not my own, but, but look, I think the first one's the Oxford Dictionary. It says, strong belief in God or the doctrines of religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. Based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. So hold that for a second. And then the second definition, see if you can hear a difference. Trusting in something that you cannot explicitly prove. Do you hear the difference between those two? I, I read those. And, and the first one I read and went, well, there's, there's definitely a worldview bias with the first one. Right? If you, if you hear closely, like belief in God based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. What does that mean? Spiritual apprehension. Apprehension means anxiety, worry, fear, right? You're holding on to this idea of God because you're afraid, not because of proof, right? That's what the def- dictionary definition that someone came up with and says, but I want you to hear the difference between the second one. The second definition says trusting in something you cannot explicitly prove, right? That's a little different. Right? Because all of us have faith, if we stop and think about it, something that you can't explicitly prove, you can get to the end of your understanding and your discernment and what you can see and what you can touch and what you can feel and what you've experienced. And then there's going to be steps that are now beyond what you can explicitly prove. And that is true for every single one of us. And you then have to make a step of faith of what do I believe about this thing that I can't prove? And that's all of us. The nature of faith is such that all of us are putting our faith in different things. But I want you to see the difference between those two definitions. The first one is saying the spiritual, this fear that's not actually based on anything that you can prove versus thinking what you can discern, what you can see. But now it steps beyond those bounds. But it is based on what you can think through, what you can understand, what you do know. And so faith is not the absence of reason. They're not at odds. And so when someone tries to say like faith in God is just spiritual apprehension rather than proof, that's a lie. That's not true. There's a lot of reasons why we hold our different views and why why we come to them. And it's important for us to see the difference between those two. Oftentimes in our world, people will say that first definition, if you claim to be a Christian, well, that's just superstition. And you don't have any reason for that. And that's not true. That's not true at all. But the inverse is is true, right? If you think about it, not only are we holding to what we hold to based on what we can see and what we've surmised and what we've discerned and what we've looked at, but the same is true on the other side of the person who says they don't believe in God. I I want us just to think about that for just a second. Every single person is putting their trust in something they cannot explicitly prove, right? For example, just let's use belief in God. Can you prove explicitly, empirically, that there is a God? The answer is no. <laughs> you go, well, wait a second, what, what does he want me to say as, as a pastor who believes in God? No, I can't explicitly prove it. I can't show you empirically. I can't put God in a test tube and go, see, I've proved it to you. But the opposite is true. The person who says, well, I have a belief that there is no God, they too are putting their faith that there's no God. They can't prove it either. We're both doing the same thing, coming at it from different sides. That's the nature of faith. We've gotten to the end of something that we can or cannot prove, and now we're stepping into faith. Does that make sense? 
It's an important distinction when you're having discussions with people about your faith. And somebody kind of comes at you with that. Well, that's just superstition and there's no proof. You go, wait a second. We all do that. Every single person is making a step of faith in certain areas in what we believe. And so I want us to think about the centurion here, though, together for just a second. That this guy kind of comes to a place in his life where he takes the step of faith that maybe Jesus can help his friend who's sick. And so why does he come to that uh, step of faith? What leads him to that? Well, part of it we could say, well, he's afraid his friend's going to die and he's kind of desperate. He loves this person. He's on death's door. What do I have to lose? No, that wouldn't be wrong to say that. But I think it's more than that. It says he's heard of Jesus and what he's doing. This man's heard about who Jesus is and the power with which he's teaching and the understanding that he has and the things that he's doing. The understanding that Jesus is showing that he's seeing, you're seeing in the way he talks and the way he operates that no one has ever spoken like this before. You'll see that over and over in the Gospels, right? They'll go, no one talks like this. And I would tell you, even today, 2,000 years later, that's still true. You read the sayings of Jesus, and no one talks like that. I heard a guy say once, if you want to understand kind of the miraculous nature of Jesus' words, try to make up a saying like Jesus has in the Sermon on the Mount. Try to come up with one that's as good and as deep and as thoughtful as what Jesus is saying. And he said, quickly, you'll see how hard it is. And that here you have this abundance of knowledge that is pouring forth out of Jesus. Now, we've said this all along in this series. That's because he's the Logos. He is the divine truth that has stepped into time and space. And that's why he talks the way he talks, because we have God in the flesh. But even if you don't believe that, you have to come to terms with why does he talk this way? Why have his sayings sustained for so long? Why are we still studying his words and being blown away at his insight? And so part of what happens here, and I want you to see this, is that centurion, it's not just blind faith. It's not superstition. It's not just hopeful. It's based on what he's heard of who Jesus is, what he knows of him. And the nature of faith is not just making a step uh, without that, but it's actually thinking. And based on what you know and what you see. And so every single one of us does this in different ways. Whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God. uh, Whether you're an atheist or you're a theist that believes in God. Or you're an agnostic. Agnostic just means that you say, I don't know. Right? Agnostic, that's really what it means. It's it's not that I don't have belief in God, but I don't... I'm saying I'm not sure. I'm not saying there's not a God, but I'm not saying there is and I'm not sure. I have a dear friend who would say he's an agnostic. And we have conversations about this all the time. And he's really seeking. And he'll, he'll, just, he'll default, though, to I don't know. I just don't know. And so not long ago, I actually said to him, I said, but, but what do you believe happens when you die? Right? You're going to die. And he says, yes, I agree, I'm going to die. I said, well, what do you believe happens? And he said, well, I think it's just like turning the lights out. Nothing. You just cease to be and that's it. And that's the end of it. I say to him, you realize that that's a faith-based assumption. You're putting your faith in this thing that you cannot empirically prove. And he'll go, well, yeah, maybe, maybe. But I don't know. 
And we try to do that at different times. But the truth is we are all holding on to things that we're putting our faith in. Every single one of us. And so I want you just to think about that for a second. To really consider that when you have discussions with people. Every single person you meet is holding on to faith-based things. They have faith in something. Right? At the moment that you say there's no God, that is a faith-based belief. You've put your faith in this thing. There's this thing that the world will tell you over and over that we start with nothing. And now you've got to prove God to me. But it works the other way as well. And as soon as you kind of give that ground up and go, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the rational person who's scientifically minded believes there's nothing. And now you've got to prove it to him. That is faith. Do you understand? They're taking that on faith based on based on what they can see and what they understand. But it's still a faith based belief. That's the nature of faith. Every single one of us is putting our faith in something. And so I want us to make sure that we see that if you reject God, you re- reject that Jesus is his son. You're not doing so based on reason alone or evidence alone. You are putting your faith in something else. And so that's true of all of us. That's the nature of faith. And so the second thing I want us to consider, so we look at the the centurion and his friends here and what's happening, is what is the object of your faith? If we all have faith, we're all putting it in something, what is the object of your faith? What are you putting it in? And if you look closely at this passage, you actually see a pretty good uh, comparison here. Two different ways in which people are operating. You've got the centurions and you've got the Jewish elders that come to Jesus on his behalf. And I want you to look at how they're different, how their approach is different in what they're doing, right? So look first at the uh, Jewish elders, verse four, and they came to Jesus and they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he talking about the centurion is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them And he was not far off from the house and the centurion sent his friends out saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Do you see a difference? The, The first people come to Jesus, the Jewish elders that know this man, and they say to Jesus, hey, you've got to come do this thing for him because he's worthy. He's a good guy. He built us our synagogue He's done some good things. So Jesus, you owe him. Come do this for him. Right? That's what they say. He deserves for you to do it. He's worthy. And I'm going to tell you, my experience is so many people have this view of God. That this is the way you approach faith. This is the way you approach God. That I'm a pretty good person and that God's a good God. Right? They have, they have this nondescript kind of nebulous God that does good things for good people. And you come to God on the basis of your good works. And if you're a pretty good person and you do that, God will let you into heaven. If you're a pretty good person and you try to do your best, then God will grant your deepest wishes. It's really kind of like a a genie in the bottle thing, really. It's not really God. It's just this thing that's there that helps you when you need it. But it's roughly based on how good you are. And I'll tell you, I see this at every single funeral I've ever done. And I'm not saying every funeral, the person believed that, not that at all, but every funeral I think I've ever been part of, somebody comes up to me and talks about whoever the person was. They go, he was a really good guy. He's a good guy and he's a good dad and he's a good friend. And so I'm sure he's now in a better place. 
Or she was a really good woman. She's a great wife and a great grandmother. So I'm sure she's in a better place. And what they say is, or what the implication is, is that because they're pretty good, God will accept them. And that's how we approach God. And that's the same thing these people are saying on Jesus' behalf. Jesus, you've got to go do this for him because he's a good guy. He's worthy. He deserves this. And so we do that all the time. We think that way. But the truth is the Bible tells us over and over that none of us, no one, can approach God on the basis of their works. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one will be justified by works of the law before God. It is a blanket statement in the Bible that applies to every single person outside of Jesus. That none of us can walk straight up to God based on what we do. That we will never ever measure up to a holy, righteous, perfect God. Now the reason that we think we can is because of our sinful nature. Our sin nature takes the way we were created with God to be the center of all things. That we are made to glorify God. That it is God's world And we exist because he said so, and it makes it all about us. God answers to me. And I'll approach God based on what I do and who I am. And we flip it. And it's because of our sinfulness that we do so. We believe it all hinges on us. And the story revolves around me. And so they may not have been thinking all those ways out, but that's what's happening here when they approach Jesus. They go, you got to do this for him. He's worthy. He's a good guy. He deserves this. And so oftentimes that's the way that we approach faith. But I want you to think about this. When we do, what is the object of our faith? It's me. It's what I'm doing. It's how good I am. It's the things that I've accomplished. I'm putting my faith in that God will let me into his heaven because I'm a pretty good person. It's all about me. Now I want you to see this. Look at the difference of the centurion. The guy that Jesus looks at and marvels at his faith. He goes, I haven't seen faith like this anywhere. Is that what he says? Does he come out to Jesus and go, Jesus, they're right. I built their synagogue. I've been nice. I'm a good guy. Come heal this guy for me. No, that's not what he says at all. Look at what he says. They show up. They get there. Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent his friends to Jesus saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but just say the word and let my servant be healed. He goes, you don't even have to come any farther. You don't have to come to my house. I don't deserve for you to come to my house. I don't deserve to have you do for this. I don't presume that you would do this for me, but if in your grace that you would heal my servant, I know you can do this. And that's what the centurion says. He says, I don't deserve it, but would you please in your grace and your mercy do this? Do you see the difference between the two? A guy that says, I have nothing to offer of myself. It's not because of what I've done. I am throwing myself on your mercy. I'm counting on your grace in this situation that you would do for me what I can't do. Because I'm at the end of myself. And I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to deal with my dear friend who's dying. And he says, so I'm going to put my trust in you, Jesus. And this is the faith that Jesus looks at and marvels and says, I haven't seen faith like this even in Israel. And I want you just to think about that for a second. There's something here that's, that I think is pretty important. 
as you look at this, and maybe you don't see it right away. I actually was reading through some different commentaries and listening to a, a pastor I really like, and he pointed this out, and I went, wow, I don't know that I would have seen that. But in verse 8, I want you to notice the way he says what he says to Jesus, right? Verse 8, he says, I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Right? So he says, I'm under authority, and those under me do what I tell them to. And he says, I too am a man under authority, saying to Jesus that you obviously are a man under authority that has some sort of authority here. And I think part of what he's saying to Jesus is, I don't know exactly how you're going to do this, but I think you have some relationship with God. Right? You too are a man under authority. You have some relationship with God. I don't know how this works exactly, but I believe you can do this. And as I was reading, and, and what the commentary pointed out was just the, the fact that in this, this guy doesn't have a perfectly formed theology of who Jesus is. Right? He doesn't have an orthodox faith in the sense that Jesus is the same substance, equal in power and glory to God the Father. Right? That's what we say of who Jesus is. The same substance, he is God himself in the flesh, equal in every way with the Father. And he goes, you're a man under authority like I'm a man under... I don't know exactly your relationship with God, but I'm putting my trust in you. And here's the amazing thing. That despite that he doesn't have it all fully worked out and yet together, what happens? He goes back to the house and he finds his servant healed. Jesus meets him there and pours out his power into his life and he heals this man. This amazing thing happens. And so what I want us to think about is, is that it's not the quality or the perfection of our faith, but it's the object of our faith. He doesn't have it all perfect. And, and this is not the only time this happens in the Gospels. It happens a lot. I'm, I'm thinking of, of, of Mark chapter 8, where the guy has a son who's been uh, possessed by a demon and he's having all these problems and he comes to Jesus and he's pleading and he says, if you can, would you heal him? And Jesus looks at the guy and says, if? If I can? He says, but just believe. Believe. And the guy says, I believe, but help my unbelief. He says, I believe, but I've got some doubts. And I'm not exactly sure how this works, but I'm going to trust in you, Jesus. And what does he do? He meets him there and he heals his son. God in his grace meets us in those moments. It's not the perfection of our faith. It's the object of our faith that we're putting it in Jesus. And I want you just to think about how remarkable and wonderful that is. If it's the perfection of your faith, that your theology is perfect, then we're all in trouble. We've all got bits and pieces that we're wrestling with and we're not sure and doubts that we struggle with. But Jesus has come to me and he meets us there in the midst of it. And it's not the perfection of our faith, it's the object of our faith. I heard the example a long time ago, story of the... Two, two guys walking through the woods one day and it's in the middle of the winter and they're walking along like a, a big cliff and down below is a, a frozen lake that's like 20 feet down or so. And as they're walking along, a great big bear comes up on them and they freeze. And there's the bear right in front of them. And they go, the, one of them says, we got to jump. 
We've got to jump on the lake below. He said, I've been here before. It's frozen. It's frozen solid by like a couple feet. We'll be okay. But it's the only way we're getting away from this bear. And the second guy goes, I don't know, man. We might jump and go through that water and freeze to death right here in the middle of the woods. We might drown in that lake if we break through that ice. I don't know. And right at that moment, the bear roars and starts to come at him. And the guy goes, let's go. And they jump. And they both jump and they land on the lake and it holds. It's frozen solid. It's fine. And so they get to the bottom. And the question is, who's more saved? The guy that was certain that we're going to make this or the guy that's like, I don't know. It's the object of your faith, not the perfection of your faith. And we put our faith in Jesus. And that's what the centurion does. He says, I'm not worthy and I don't deserve this, but I'm putting my trust in you and who you are. And I'm going to go with you on this. He took everything that he saw. His faith is not unreasoned. He reasoned through what he knew of Jesus and what he was doing and who he was. And he comes to him and he puts his trust in him. And that's what saving faith looks like. And so I want you to think about that for just a second. If the nature of faith is that we all have faith and we're saved by not what we hold, like our culture will tell us that. We'll just believe whatever you believe and believe it earnestly. That's a lie. If you believe earnestly the earth is flat, the earth is not flat. It doesn't matter how earnestly you hold that belief. It doesn't make it so. That's a lie. That if you hold it with all your heart that that's true. That's not true. It's the object of your faith. And so I want you to think about that. If we all have faith, what are you putting your faith in? Are you putting your faith in Jesus and who he is and what he's done? Are you putting your faith in yourself and what you think and the theories that you have and the way that you perceive things? And what you've come to. And I want you to consider that and then we'll end here. If you put your faith in Jesus, you can rest in your faith in Jesus. And I want you to understand why. Jesus is unique in this regard. If you look at all the major world religions, they basically are some sort of formula. That's like I was saying before, that God is good And he rewards good people. And so we seek to earn our way there. A plus B plus C equals I'm good enough to be in God's presence. Right? Islam has the five pillars of Islam. Give alms and pray and go to Mecca and do these things. And if you do them well enough, God may accept you. Judaism has roots in that. Do the best you can and God will accept you. On and on and on. I was actually just watching a show the other day, which was terrible, by the way. But it's the ideas that God spoke to this guy. This one guy, and now he's supposed to be God's messenger. And I got sucked into it because I'm like, well, what are they going to say about God? Right? That's why I end up getting sucked into a show like that. It's like, well, what is their understanding of who God? And it gets to about the, the third episode or something, and God sits down with this guy and tells him. And he's like, here's the message. It doesn't really matter what people believe. Just be nice to everybody. That's it. doesn't matter what you believe. Everybody's equally right. Who cares? And I was like, ugh, that's not it. And that's not it because none of us can stand before a holy, righteous God. The idea that A plus B, my works and I put them on the scale, will somehow balance out that I can stand before a holy, righteous God misunderstands who God is. And this is where Christianity is different. This is where Jesus is different. Because Jesus says, come to me, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You can never do enough to stand in my presence, but that's why I've come to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And it stands starkly different than everything else. The difference is simply this. Are you putting your trust in yourself, in your works, in your understanding? Are you putting your trust in Jesus? It really becomes that simple. Have I transferred my trust to Jesus and who He is and what He's done, or am I putting it in me? There's really no middle ground. And so I just ask you today, are you trusting completely in Jesus and who he is? And I want you to think about that two ways. Yes, your salvation, your eternal security, knowing God and and being with him forever and all the things that you're created for. But I would also ask in your sanctification, that is growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of your life. Are you trusting in yourself or are you trusting in what Jesus says? We just finished the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says a whole lot of things that are hard. A whole lot of things that seem the exact opposite of our culture. And when you start to come to those things, am I trusting in my understanding? Or I go, I'm going to put my trust in Jesus. I'm going to trust him in every step along the way. What is your faith in? But then the last thing I would say to you is that you can rest when your faith is in Jesus Because even though we're not perfect, and even though we've blown it, and we do, and even though we've struggled in all these ways in our lives and we miss it in different ways, Jesus doesn't. He nailed it. (laughs) He did it all perfectly. He lived the life that we haven't lived, and he died the death that we deserve, and so we can rest that he's finished that work. And the resurrection proves that. And so if you're wrestling with faith, if you have doubts, And you go, yeah, I kind of get it, or I'm kind of on the fence, or I'm still wrestling with those things. I I would just invite you. I would love nothing more than to sit down with you and talk about the resurrection. I have been overwhelmed in my life as I start to look at all the things that surrounded the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That no one in the first century believed in resurrection in the middle of history. No one. And then overnight, there were a whole bunch of people that suddenly believed that this man raised from the dead. And many of them gave their lives for it. Brutally were killed to hold to this fact, this truth. Your faith is not without reason. There are very good reasons for who Jesus is. It is not a faith that is, that is opposed to reason. It's not because of spiritual apprehension over proof. There are evidences for who Jesus is. And I would love to sit down and look at that with you. To walk through those things. God tells us to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To think. Our faith is not absence of thinking. And so please, please think through that. What is my faith in? Why am I holding that? And resting in who it is in Jesus. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel that you have done for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. I pray that you would help us to see afresh today the things that we are putting our faith in, that each day we we make faith-based assumptions as we go through our life. And so I pray that you would show us, that you would just, uh, through the Spirit, convict us of the things that we're trusting in, and that when those things are not you, that you would alert us to that. And that we would repent, that we would turn from putting our faith in other things and trust wholly in you in every area of our life. 
We thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.